Herman Melville's famous novel, Moby, Moby Dick, is the story of Captain Ahab's self-destructive obsession to hunt down the white sperm whale that bit off his leg. Captain Ahab's unbridled lust for vengeance is countered by his first mate's desire to return safely home to his wife and child. His mate is a man named Starbuck, the coffee company's namesake, by the way. But there's a line in the novel that applies to our text. For Starbuck is speaking to the ship's crew when he shouts, I will have no man in my boat who is not afraid of a whale. Think about that. I will have no man in my boat who is not afraid of a whale. You see, according to Starbucks, some fear of the peril at hand is healthy when encountering danger. Giant sperm whales are lethal, and without a proper fear, a sailor won't be as vigilant as he needs to be in light of the risks involved in harpooning a killer whale. In essence, this is what I hear Pastor John saying to the churches in these chapters. This revelation was written to cultivate a healthy respect for the Lord Jesus. As Proverbs states, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Jesus is not a person with which, for, to, with which to trifle. Moby Dick was the king of the sea, but the Bible calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king of the jungle. And in the words of Starbuck, everyone in this boat needs to have a healthy fear of that lion. For a day of great tribulation is coming when Jesus is going to judge this wick, the wicked of this world. And Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is John's description of these coming judgments. This morning, our text brings us to chapter 8. And there we begin. When he opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. See, up until now, the revelation has described heaven as being a very loud, a very noisy place. People are falling down before God's throne. They worship the Lamb. About the time one voice starts to fade, another praise erupts. But now a holy hush falls over the halls of heaven. And for half an hour, it is so quiet, you can hear a pin drop. It's as if heaven gasps over what's about to happen on earth. Verse 2 says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now remember the structure of the judgments that John sees in the Revelation. Seven seals are broken. Seven trumpets are then blown, seven bowls are emptied out. Later in chapter 10, verse 4, we're also told of seven thunders that rumble, yet John isn't allowed to reveal their identity. Here, though, the seventh seal becomes the seven trumpets, and Revelation 8 describes a second round of divine retribution. The final seal sets off seven trumpet blasts, like fireworks, with a blast within a blast, the seventh seal sounds out six more clusters of judgment. He says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. 
He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now this heavenly angel is acting like a Jewish priest. In fact, what John refers to as angel, the word in the Greek language, is really just another word for messenger. And some believe this could actually be the Lord Jesus. We know from Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest who serves before God in the heavenly temple. This angel could be Jesus. Notice he grabs a bowl full of our prayers, our prayers. These are prayers that we've prayed for truth to come out, for justice to be served, for righteousness to come upon the earth, for fairness to happen. Prayers that were launched in response to the hardships and the heartaches of your life. Prayers prayed from your own desperation. These are prayers that right now perhaps you're thinking are going unheeded. Friends, this is a very personal passage. Think of the many prayers that you've poured out to God. Your deepest heartfelt feelings born of your life's travails. This angel has your prayers in a bowl. But notice he mixes them now with the fire of God's wrath. And in that bowl they turn to judgments. Like popcorn kernels in the hot oil of a frying pan. They start to pop and hop out of the pan. They fall to the earth now as thunderclaps and lightning strikes and earthquakes as divine judgments. The censer will be emptied out to censure the wicked. This is God's answer to our cry for a more righteous world. Did you hear about Uncle Sid? After returning from the Korean War, he was arrested on a burglary charge. He was found guilty. But before the judge passed sentence, Sid's lawyer tried one more tactic. He said, Your Honor, my client did not break into the house. The living room window was open. So he simply inserted his right arm and removed a few items. Now my client's arm is not my client, so I don't think you should punish him for an offense committed by one of his limbs. Well, snooty judge, he replied, he said, well, that's an interesting argument. Tell you what I'll do. I'll follow your logic and sentence your defendant's arm to one year in prison. He can accompany the arm or not. That's up to him. That's when a big grin came over Uncle Sid's face. He calmly removed his artificial arm, handed it to the dumbfounded judge, and walked out of the courtroom with his lawyer. The two men laughed all the way home. You know, there are a lot of folks in this world like Uncle Sid who've learned how to beat the system. They seem to always avoid judgment or punishment. They sin with impunity. Punishment always gets avoided. But that'll end when these trumpets blow. God will see to it that justice is served once and for all. In verse 6, the angels warm up. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. 
The angels, they clear their throats. They take a deep breath. The reeds are put to their lips. Verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Is this an asteroid, a meteor, a comet? Or is it a nuclear bomb? Did Iran finally make good on its threats? Did some terrorist get his hands on a loose nuke? Some kind of firestorm is responsible for a third of the earth's trees and vegetation burning to a crisp. It's estimated the detonation of just 25 thermonuclear warheads could scorch an area the size of mid-America from the Appalachian to the Rocky Mountains. A nuclear explosion compresses the humidity, shoots it up into the upper atmosphere where it freezes and falls back to earth as ice. Thus, we read here of the hail and the fire. Well, then the second angel sounded. And something like a great mountain burning with fire. It was like a great mountain burning with fire. Something like it. It was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Notice with each of these trumpets, the judgment intensifies. These are global events that will rock our planet off its foundations. And they're prophetic, friends. God has written these judgments into the world's future. Here the mountain thrown, into the, thrown at the earth pollutes a third of the sea. A third of the sea would amount to all the world's oceans uh, excepting the Pacific and the Indian Oceans. In verse 8, notice John has described a great mountain burning, tossed into the sea. Is this an incoming meteorite? You know, we talked about this briefly last week, but NASA is currently tracking as many as 4,000 what it calls NEOs or near-Earth objects streaking through space. Almost monthly, we hear of another potential strike. Recently, I saw a National Geographic special which referred to these projectiles in terms that John and the Revelation uses as mountains tumbling through space. That's NASA's language. Sounds like John. According to the European Space Agency, of the 600,000 asteroids orbiting through our solar system, about 20,000 are considered NEOs, or near-Earth objects. In recent years, the most significant of these NEOs exploded in the skies over a city in northern Russia. The meteorite bust-up occurred in February of 2013. The cosmic projectile was the size of a six-story building. Its blast equaled a nuclear detonation. The shockwave shattered glass and injured 1,200 people. It would have been far more damaging had it hit the ground. Daniel Yeomans, an astronomer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, has made this statement. He said, space is filled with objects that threaten Earth. Earth runs its course about the sun in a swarm of asteroids. Sooner or later, our planet will be struck by one of them. Revelation agrees. This is what John saw. For now, it's as if God keeps firing warning shots across our bow to encourage us to repent. And then verse 12, another trumpet blasts. 
Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven. More projectiles falling to the earth. Here again, the Greek word translated star is astera or asteroid. It refers to any heavenly body. It plummets, burning like a torch, John says. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is wormwood, which, which means bitterness. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Whatever this star is, it has a devastating effect. It contaminates a third of the world's fresh water supply. So get the big picture. A third of the vegetation on earth is scorched. A third of our oceans are now ruined. A third of the fresh water has been contaminated. But it's not over. For then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. You know, if a giant comet or meteorite impacted Earth, it could tip our planet further on its axis and somehow alter our orbit, thus reducing exposure to the sun by a third. There's another way to think of these catastrophes. At times, the Bible uses what we call the language of observation. It describes a phenomenon as it appears to the viewer. We do this too whenever we speak of a sunrise or a sunset. The phenomenon is actually caused by a rotating earth, but it appears as if the sun is rising or the sun is setting. Here it could be that some obstruction a thick cloud, perhaps, blocks our view of a third of the sky. Then verse 13, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In short, the angel is warning the inhabitants of earth, you ain't seen nothing yet. Three more shrill trumpets ring out. What a contrast, though. In heaven, the angels sing, holy, 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 while on earth they shout, woe, woe, woe. On August the 20th, a couple weeks ago, the high temperature in the city of Resolute, Canada, was 35 degrees Fahrenheit. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? The low in Resolute dipped to 31, a degree below freezing. Whereas on the same day, the high temperature in Phoenix, Arizona, reached 111 degrees. In the shade, no less. The low temperature in Phoenix was 89 degrees. I'd say there was quite a contrast weather-wise between Phoenix and Resolute two Thursdays ago. But that's nothing compared to the contrast that will exist between heaven and earth in these final seven years prior to the return of Jesus to our planet. The atmosphere in, heavy is in heaven is dominated by warm praises. A sunny future exists, whereas on earth the storm and cold of God's fury rages. And that's when the fifth angel picks up his trumpet and blasts another judgment. Chapter 9. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. 
Now, in Revelation 8, we saw stars or celestial bodies, meteorites and asteroids, fall to the earth. This is a different kind of star. For notice the next line. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Notice this star is a him, not an it. This is not a falling projectile, but a fallen person. And from what he holds and by what he does, he seems to be an angel. A fallen angel, that is. We know from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that before Satan sinned, he was Lucifer, the archangel. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We also know that Satan led a third of the angels into rebellion with him. It seems this fallen angel here is a demon, perhaps even Satan himself. And notice what he does. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Now this fallen star, this demon, he lifts the lid on hell and a flume of hot smoke laced with fiery embers billows up. Apparently in hell you don't get a choice. There isn't a non-smoking section. It's smoking for everybody. Because when he lifts a lid on hell, smoke pours out, billows out, along with hot embers. And this angel has the key to the bottomless pit. This is the place of eternal torment that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 16. In his story of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember it. Lazarus died and he was comforted in in paradise. Whereas the rich man died and he went to a place of flame and thirst. Here this demon unlocks the pit of torment. As Jesus put it, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And it's like opening up a Pandora's box full of evil. I hope you know hell is a real place. You don't want to go there. Certainly not after you read the things that exist there. Verse 3. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. They pour out of hell. Demonic type locusts. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That is, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. The Hebrew Billy Grahams we talked about last week back in Revelation chapter 7. Here John sees locusts swarming onto the earth. The photo that I've put up here is from East Africa this past year. Did you know that in 2020 we've seen the worst locust swarms in generations across the continent of Africa? But the locusts here in chapter 9 are not your run-of-the-mill locusts. They have traits that distinguish them from the ordinary. First, Normal locusts eat their veggies. Hey, they'll strip a field bare. 
Yet these locusts lay off the greens. They only feed on men. They're a different type of locusts. Second, these locusts aren't stifled by smoke, whereas you normally contain a locust swarm with fire. Not these locusts. They're unaffected. Third, these locusts are intelligent and spiritually aware. They're aware of who God has sealed, 144,000. Fourth, unlike a typical locust, these bugs have stingers in their tails like scorpions. These are lethal locusts. And then fifth, according to Proverbs 30, verse 27, the locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Yet read ahead, verse 11, these locusts clearly have a king. They have a leader. These locusts are demonic locusts that come from the pit of hell. And they're going to bug the entire human race. They're going to bug the entire human race. Verse 5 speaks of these creatures. He says, And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. These aren't insects. These are demon-like are, are dem, uh, insect-like demons. Some Bible teachers believe that these locusts are the demons who sinned in Noah's day. You know, we spoke of their sin back in the book of Jude. Genesis suggests that they polluted the human gene pool by having sex with the daughters of men. Their perversion was so rampant that God had to wipe out all of humanity and start over with the family of Noah. That's what the flood was about. Jude referred to these demons as the angels who did not keep their proper domain. They crossed forbidden boundaries. These were hardcore felons, and God had to lock them up after the flood in maximum security. 2 Peter 2 verses 4 and 5 tell us, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Yet here, as the fifth trumpet blows, God unleashes these demons for five months, not to kill, but to torment. You know, it's more than ironic that the floodwaters in Noah's day covered the earth for five months. This plague of locusts lasts the same duration. And in these five months, men learn that they, what they should have learned after the flood, that rebellion against God yields painful results. Understand what's going to go on on the earth during this time. In this last seven years of judgment, a pack of perverted demons driven by lust will be let loose to do what they did prior to the flood. They've now been in lockdown for 4,000 years. There's their hatred for God and man has been brewing and seething. Now they're released on the earth to ravage and to torture. Imagine releasing every death row inmate in the world, the vilest of criminals. Men with no conscience, men with nothing to lose, men looking to take out their anger on any and everybody. Yet they would still look like a pack of Boy Scouts compared to this devilish gang. This is why it's naive to talk glibly about going to hell. Oh, I'm going to hell with the best of them. Don't talk about going to hell as if hell is no big deal. Don't talk about living through and enduring the great tribulation as if that will be an easy thing. Hell and its torments are real. And when hell is spilled out on the earth, 
it will be an unimaginably horrific time in human history. People will go to bed at night in fear. So what if you're a survivalist? You're in survival mode. You've hoarded food and you've stockpiled weapons and you've installed security all around your home. How do you protect against demons? This is what will torture men in this world. Reminds me of the guy who jumped into the cab. After a while, he tapped the driver on the shoulder to give him directions. But as soon as the driver felt his hand, he lost control. The cab nearly swerved off the road. The passenger apologized, but the driver explained. He said, sorry, this is my first day on the job. For the last 20 years, I've been driving a hearse for a funeral home. It'll also be unnerving and frightening when hellish goons tap mankind on our collective shoulder. Verse 6. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. These demons will see to it that life is worse than death. Toward the end of the great tribulation, for a period of months perhaps, attempted suicides will skyrocket. People will want to die, but death will take a holiday. Folks will blow their brains out, yet refuse to die. They'll walk around like zombies with self-inflicted wounds. The zombie apocalypse will become a reality. And then John gives us a physical description of these awful locust-like demons. Verse 7, he says, The shape of their locusts of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. The Renaissance concepts of demons and gargoyles and centaurs aren't far off from John's description here of these hellish creatures. Again, these are demons who are predators. They're dressed for combat. Their purpose is to hurt men for five months. And let me ask you a serious question this morning. Have you ever said to another person, ah, just go to hell? You ever told anybody that? Have you ever said, well, to hell with that guy? After chapter 9, you want to take that back. You really do. Hell and its belching smoke and its locust torturers are nothing trivial. God's judgment both now and then is serious business. Of course, you might not have been so profane. You might have just prayed, Lord, give that person what he deserves. But with each of these trumpet blasts, you should think again. Even the hardest prosecutors, the tough on crime bunch, seldom have the stomach for judgments this stern. You know, we like to talk about justice, but when we see what justice is going to look like for billions of brazen sinners who shake their fist in God's face, we might have some pity. 
For me, after reading of what comes out of hell and how these tortures of hell will treat mankind, I, for one, am not so quick to want to rush the world to judgment. If a little mercy allows a few more folks to avoid this terrible wrath, then my cries for justice can wait. I'm sure yours can too. And then verse 11 again takes us to hell. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Both names mean the destroyer. And isn't this how Jesus referred to Satan in John chapter 10, verse 10? The Lord called the devil. He said, he, he said to the devil that he was a thief who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. The devil is a destroyer. It's Jesus who comes that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And then verse 12 tells us, One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Notice these demonic creatures are bound in a specific geographic location. Obviously, he mentions a physical location, but they were bound in a spiritual location corresponding to that physical location at the mouth of the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River once ran through the Garden of Eden. This was the river that fed the city of Babylon. Yet at the mouth of this river, apparently there is a holding cell in the spiritual realm. Under the waters, in this spiritual realm, demons are being kept bound. And this brings up an interesting point. Could there be similar holding cells under other bodies of water in different places around the earth? You remember Jesus spoke of the gates of hell. He used the word gates, plural, more than one. Does hell have multiple gates or passageways or entrance portals? The mouth of the Euphrates is one, but could there be others? You know, strange disappearances and unexplainable storms crop up in the Caribbean's Bermuda Triangle. They go unexplained. In the South Pacific, there's the Devils or the Dragon Sea. Could the mysterious activity associated with these geographical areas be explained by what we find here in chapter 9? That the gates of hell are around the globe in different places and there are certain geographical locations that invite these kinds of spiritual activity. It's interesting speculation. Certainly these angels here that are kept at the mouth of the Euphrates, these are demonic inmates. They're the baddest of all bad. They're very, very angry. And so the four angels, these four angels are demons, fallen angels, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The pale horse rider of Revelation 6 verse 8 killed a fourth of the earth's population. Now a third of what's left are killed. God's judgment is thinning out the rebels. 
In verse 16, these four angels, they take control of a vast army. John writes, Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Wow, 200 million troops. That's quite an army. Some Bible teachers look for modern day parallels and believe that this army could be the Chinese. Or it could be some other yet unidentified alliance. I think all that is uh, beyond the point really. To me what we're being told is that in the midst of all this destruction and judgment, the whole world will be in the mood to fight. They'll resist rather than repent. Heaven is all about worship, but on the earth it's all about war. And then verse 17, And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. There are people who believe that these are horse-like locusts. Uh, who are actually demons, spirit, fallen angels. But there are others who believe these could be more than just demons. There are descriptions here, and if you go back and read in verses 9 and 10, that could actually be a first century's author's description of 21st century weapons and war. Imagine John living in the first century writing of F-16 fighter jets and Apache helicopters. How would he describe them? Perhaps very similar to what we have here. A horse-like locust with metallic breastplates and with fire flaming from its mouth and wings like the sound of chariots charging into battle. Could be F-16 fighter jets or Apache helicopters. This could actually be a description of demons in control of a modern army. Today we worry about terrorists getting their hands on a nuclear bomb. But what about demons in control of sophisticated weaponry and millions of trained soldiers? This is what we'll have in this final seven years of great tribulation. Verse 18 gives another death count. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. You know, when a military plane emits a chemical or a biological weapon, it releases the spray from the tail to avoid harming the pilots in the cockpit. Whatever John sees here harms from both ends. Now you'd think by verse 20, earth survivors, those that have survived these judgments, will be, would be on their knees, repentant, pleading, broken before God, pleading for God to show mercy. But that's not what happens. Sadly, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And you see, this is the trouble with sin. 
It blinds you to your own stubbornness. The antidote is right in front of your face, but you're too proud to take it. Even after all of this judgment, haughty men stiffen their neck and resist God's rule. Which brings us back to the words of Starbuck. I will have no man in my boat who is not afraid of a whale. In other words, a healthy fear can be your salvation. The Moby Dick story didn't end so well for Captain Ahab. He fearlessly and recklessly pursued his bitter enemy until the killer whale drug him to the bottom of the sea. In the end, it was the captain's stubborn pride, his lust for revenge, that ensured his drowning. And I wonder what vice or what stubborn obsession in your life is going to be what guarantees your demise if you don't repent. We need to turn from these things that hold us down and weigh us down and align our lives to God. This will one day be the downfall of the earth's inhabitants. Despite the Lamb's warnings and judgments, rebellious men will refuse to repent. They'll worship at the altar of idols and pursue their own sinful lusts and in doing so ensure their downfall by refusing to respect the God who is greater than them. Do you have a healthy fear of God? I hope so. Don't you think of Jesus, don't dare think of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, as someone who just loves us despite our rebellion, who ignores our sin, that we can run roughshod over His laws and He doesn't care. Not hardly, friends. He expects us to turn from our sin and to embrace His will for us. The revelation of Jesus is in a sense about fear, a godly, healthy fear, a respect for an authority greater than our own wisdom and whims. And if you dare violate Him on and on and on, He'll bring judgment on you and punish you for your sins. This book is a reminder to always bow our knee to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. The revelation is all about the lion that became a lamb and the lamb that has always been a lion. Revelation inspires love for that lamb, but also fear of that lion. May you and I go forward with both.